Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Boundary Rider podcast. My name is Lachlan McCurdy and as always I'm joined by Nick Savage. How are you Nick? Look, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I mean it's been 48 hours since the end of the first test match between Australia and India and I'm still slowly starting to process what took place in Adelaide Oval. It was um, quite something. It was quite something. It was a historic day of test cricket, and we've got so much to talk about from this match, let alone the fact that right now, as we're recording this on Monday evening, there should still be test cricket being played, but we've had 48 hours without it because Australia polished them off so quickly. Exactly. It was it was strange in that the test match seemed to go so slowly and that both sides, when batting, were scoring at such a slow rate, especially India in that first innings. They really took their time, but... Due to how, due to what happened on day three, it did still end in less than two and a half days. So it was bizarre. It was a bizarre feeling for spectators that it felt really slow, but it ended very quickly. I think there was an incredible stat going around that it was the slowest test match for four or five years or something in terms of scoring rates. And it just, it still was over in two and a half days. It's quite remarkable. Well, we're going to look through basically everything we can out of that match, completely dissect it. Do India have a hope of regaining the border Gavaskar trophy for the rest of the series, or is it completely done now? We're going to go through all the big questions and talking points out of that match. We'll also look about some of the COVID concerns currently happening in Sydney and whether the the New Year's test will take place at the SCG, where we're not sure what will happen there. Then, of course, we've got to have a look at the Big Bash. There's only been two matches since we last caught up with you all, our faithful listeners, but... There's still plenty to chat about out of that. And, of course, we might finish off with a bit of Savage's Seed. But, Nick, this test match, India bowled out for 244 in the first innings, Australia 191. They had a lead there. I think everyone was confident that India would give Australia a good total to, to chase down in that fourth innings. They were then rolled for 36. Only four teams in the history of Test cricket have recorded a score lower than that. And Australia got their 93 runs, two for 93. That's that's all they needed in that fourth innings, and they got the win. Um, where do we start? Because I generally don't know where to start. Do we just go straight in and chat about this incredible bowling performance from Hazelwood and Cummins? I, I think, yeah, we do need to start almost at the end on, on that day three, looking at what happened uh, that resulted in India being bowled out for 36. Because looking at the pitch and the conditions in Adelaide, it, it didn't suggest that it was a horrific batting wicket. I mean, yes, it was difficult to bat on it, and the pitch was seeming a little bit, but it was clear skies. Uh, it was it was a day three pitch, which is ideally the best time to bat in a test match. And I think in reality, it was just poor shot selection from the Indians and a superb bowling performance from specifically Cummins and Hazelwood. I think a lot of people have criticised India and even sort of Virat Kohli came in and said that India just didn't play the Australia's ball as well. But some of those deliveries that Hazelwood, I thought in particular, but obviously Cummins as well sent down, they were completely unplayable. Just they did well to even nick them, to even get the slightest or faintest edge on it to through to Tim Payne because they were just hitting line and length every time. They were nipping away off the surface, getting that nice little bit of a wave movement. They obviously took care of that pink ball nicely, and they just reaped so many rewards on that, as you mentioned, a pitch that really should have been fantastic for batting. Yeah, as you said, early on in your innings, when you get a delivery like that, you just sort of hope and pray that it goes past the outside edge and you get a bit of an ooh and ah from the slip cordon, but they just were good enough to get an edge on everything. And six or seven of those wickets were just love little edges through to Tim Payne, who was very safe with the gloves. And, uh, well, Cameron Green with the least convincing gully catch I think I've ever seen, but his first in test cricket to remove the dangerous Virat Kohli for, for four, I think is what he ended up on. So, yeah, but Pat Cummins and Josh Hayesworth, they didn't do anything magical with the ball. They just put it on a good line of length, probably half a foot fuller from where they were in the first inning. So just tempting the players into the drive. And yep, they just pointed that seam towards second slip and let the natural variation of the pink ball do the rest. And it worked wonders. All right, we've got to go through some of these incredible stats from this match. Obviously, 36, India's lowest ever test score. Their previous worst was 42 that they brought up at Lords in 1974 against England. Only four teams, as I mentioned earlier, have recorded worse test scores than India's 36. The most recent one of those was New Zealand being all out for 26 against England in Auckland in 1955. 
India's innings was the first time in Test history that all 11 batsmen and extras could not make double figures. Agrawal was the best with his nine. And then I think the one that I was most impressed by that showed how good Josh Hazelwood was, it took him 25 deliveries to complete his five-wicket haul. It's the fastest 5-4 from the start is 19 balls, but I think he equaled Stuart Broad's incredible spell in Trent Bridge. And that's something that we hold in folklore, I guess, at how good Broad was at Trent Bridge. Hazelwood just went and did the same. Well, Broad was lucky in that no one else at the other end was taking any wickets. So he was able to go on and claim 8 for 15 that day, which is, I think, still the best bowling spell I've witnessed in my lifetime. But Josh Hazelwood... As great his Pfeiffer was, I, I personally think that Pat Cummins was the bowler of the day simply because of the calibre of the batsman he dismissed. Mm. He removed Pajara, who has obviously been basically a wall, a threat to the Aussies for five test matches in a row now in Australia, and Virat Kohli, the number two batsman in the world, once again caught in gully. So as amazing as Josh Hazelwood was, a lot of his wickets were the low, lower to middle order batsmen who haven't really cemented their spot on the side necessarily. Um, without, I mean, for, for someone to take five for three, it's hard to criticise them. But I personally thought Cummins was the pick of the two bowlers on the day. I think that's understandable, certainly, as you mentioned, because of the calibre of players he got out. But Hazelwood's five-wicket haul, I think only two other players have taken a five-wicket haul for less runs. I think you've got to look back to 1947, I think, it's quite incredible that Ernie Toshak, I think Australia's got five for two in 1947. That's incredible that only two other people have gotten better figures for five wicket hauls than Hazelwood's. I think we're going to be looking back at this sort of innings in 10, 15 years time, just going, what on earth happened? Because on paper, this Indian team should not have been rolled for that score. Yeah, exactly right. We will be looking back on this for many years to come. And I think the best thing to come out of it is on every single social media post involving Australian cricket, there's always at least five or six comments about sandpaper. And I now look forward to all the Australian cricket fans replying to those comments with a picture of the Adelaide scoreboard on uh, oh. Saturday morning, which I think is a, a pretty decent comeback to the, the outdated sandpaper jokes, which have been um, plaguing social media for over two years now. That image of the scoreboard hanging in the Louvre is just such, <laughs> such, a, such a beautiful sight to see and something I'm sure we will refer back to many times over the coming years. Those, we... those, sorry, just just, a, just thought just now, those men controlling that scoreboard would have had a really busy morning oh. frantically running up and down, changing the players' names and updating the score. It would have been hectic for them on Saturday morning. Who do you reckon would have had a busier morning, the people manning the scoreboard or India's batsmen in the dressing room going, oh, I've got to get my pads on quick? Yeah, certainly that uh, change room. I mean, we, we all enjoyed the Amazon series, The Test, but I would have loved a camera crew in that India change room on Saturday morning. That's what I want to see. Do you reckon some bats and helmets got thrown against the ground? Oh, I can imagine Coley. Certainly Coley. I think he didn't He didn't like the fact he was given out um, because there was a little bit of uncertainty about whether Cameron Green had held on to the catch. And I think considering it was his last innings of the year and people were expecting him to finally get that century in 2020, he might have been a little bit upset, a uh, bit of Captain Grumpy there. But um, I feel like the rest of them would have just been more in shock rather than anger. Well, I think certainly the way... Coley got out, out of all the wickets in that innings, that's probably the one that you go, he could have done something about that really because he did kind of play away from his body a little bit. He didn't need to do that where a lot of the other players were sort of just caught by good balls. So maybe Coley could have done better there, but it's incredible when you think just how much of an impact his dismissal in the first innings had on the game. They were absolutely flying. I think it was three for 180 odd they were in that first innings before it was a collapse of absolutely epic proportions after that horrible run out. It was just, it was a horrible run out between him and the incoming captain, Ajinka Rahana, and there's really no other way to describe it. Yeah, spot on. I I think, as you said, um, at that situation in the evening session, they were three down for quite a few. Pajara had set up the innings nicely. Coley was looking fantastic. And Rahana was starting to, you know, find his feet in the innings as well. But, after that run out, everything that could have possibly gone wrong for India did go wrong. I mean, they re- the lower order didn't wag. The tail didn't wag at all. Their fielding on day two was atrocious. 
I mean, if they held on to a few catches, they were still probably in the game um, even after that 36 collapse. I mean, Payne was dropped on 20-odd, went on to score 70. Labashain was dropped twice when he was only on in the teens, and he went on to score 40-odd. And, yeah, I think after that run out, they lost with the bat something like 17 for 96 or some, somewhere yep. around that. 17 wickets yep. for 96 runs. Like, that is abysmal. That is atrocious. Oh. Well, before we move on from Australia's incredible efforts with the ball, let's have a listen to what Josh Hazelwood had to say after his five-wicket haul. I think it was pretty similar to maybe maybe Leeds, look, looking back to the Ashes. Um, we bought him out for 60-odd, but, yeah, I, I didn't change... A great deal from the from the first innings. Um, probably just bowled a touch fuller, I guess, and maybe a touch straighter. But um, I thought Camo set the scene beautifully, and I sort of just followed suit. So um, yeah, but everything everything got nicked and everything went to hand. So uh, one of those days. So we've touched extensively on Australia's incredible bowling performance, but do you think, to a certain extent, that's paved over some of the cracks that we saw in our batting lineup in that first innings? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Australia still have a bit of a problem with their batting order. And I think promoting Matthew Wade to opener, I was quite impressed with how he went as an opening batsman. But at the same time, it's fixed a problem temporarily, but it's also created two new ones. Because let's say, hypothetically, David Warner was good to go for Boxing Day. Well, then who do you drop from the side? You can't drop Joe Burns. He was the only batsman in the top six to score a 50. So you can't drop Mm. him. You can't really drop Matthew Wade because he has done quite well in the Sheffield Shield. He's done quite well on the test side. He hasn't done anything to warrant losing a spot. Labuschagne and Smith are obviously stalwarts in the side. And then you've got Travis Head and Cameron Green, who are both in different um, times of their career, yes, but neither have done necessarily anything to warrant being dropped either. So if David Warner does come back, do you drop the young kid who's 21 and, and just ruin his confidence after one test match? Do you drop the former vice-captain who scored a test century in Boxing Day last year? Or do you drop Matthew Wade, who would be bitterly unlucky, um, who almost did the team a favour by opening the batting? So, yes, there are still a lot of problems there. Out of those three options you've given, I know what one I'm leading towards. I would be saying, Cameron Green, hope you enjoyed your test debut. I'm sure you'll be back in the squad soon. But David Warner's coming back and we need to make room for him. I think as a youngster with plenty of cricket ahead of him, he would understand that. And it's not about knocking his confidence. He knows he'll get another go. He knows he can perform at that level now. And I think it's just about going, all right, you'll get another turn. But at this moment, David Warner, who is one of the best batsmen, opening batsmen Australia's ever had, has to come back into the team. So I would be tapping Cam Green on the shoulder and saying, look, we're sure, I'm sure we'll give you a go at some stage in the rest of the tour. But for now, have a break and just watch from the sidelines and be 12th man and be involved around the group still. I think I do agree with you. I think I do agree. But as somewhat of a rebuttal, the, the Australian bowlers will be having flashbacks to MCG tests from two years ago mm. where they were absolutely exhausted after the first innings. They bowled their hearts out. They didn't have that fifth bowling option. And then Australia did collapse in their first innings and they were out in the field again, bowling to Pajara and Coley. They will be having those sort of nightmarish flashbacks. So having that fifth bowling option does really help that bowling attack. But if the pitch isn't as flat as it was two and three years ago, then hopefully that won't necessarily be a problem. So, but I do agree with you. Cameron Green would be, should be the one to make way, even if it does mean sacrificing that fifth bowling option. Well, my hope is that because we've seen next to no AFL at the MCG this year, that the pitch is going to be fantastic. It's going to be one of the best Melbourne Cricket Ground and Boxing Day pitches we have seen in a very long time. So I guess that's my hope, that we'll see a more even contest between bat and ball. And Mm. as a result of, I guess, the groundskeepers having all year essentially to prepare for this pitch, it should be a good one. But I want to go back to Joe Burns. Obviously, he got that 50, and as you said, that's important because he was the only one in the top six to get the 50. But do you think it should be guaranteeing his place, as so many people have said in the last 48 hours since he made that score? Do you think that is enough runs for him to be, say, locked in for the rest of the summer? I'd certainly say it's enough for him to stay in the side till Boxing Day, definitely for Boxing Day. Um, even if Pekovsky does recover from his concussion, I wouldn't be picking him. 
um, simply because I'm more concerned about his overall health. And Marcus Harris, unless something horrific happens, hopefully he won't be needed. He's only there as an emergency, really. So, yeah, I think Burns has done enough to keep a spot for sure. And hopefully he does partner with Warner when Warner comes back. That's my gut feeling, at least. Is it the sort of performance he needs to now back up, though, and get another 50 at Boxing Day? Otherwise, he's going to be straight under pressure again. Potentially. Uh, potentially. I think we saw glimpses of the sort of the, the Joe Burns we saw like five, six years ago. Um, aggressive, you know, taking on the pull shot, skipping down the pitch to the spin bowlers, that sort of mm-hmm. aggressive style of batting that we like to see in opening batsmen in Australia. And hopefully if we just see glimpses of that more over the coming couple of test matches, then even if he doesn't get big totals, even if he doesn't get centuries, as long as he's getting the shine off the ball and when Smith and Labuschagne come to the crease and that shine is off the ball, then he's done his job in my eyes. He doesn't need big totals. I think he just needs to you know, show that he is capable of spending time at the crease, which he wasn't able to do a few weeks ago. It was interesting. Joe Burns did media today and spoke about how he felt during the innings and sort of identified one particular pull shot off Umash Yadav when he went, all right, I've hit this out of the middle. I now feel confident. I feel like I've got my rhythm back again now. And it's kind of interesting how that's all it takes for a player that if they can just get that one shot out of the middle, it all comes back to him because as he sort of said, and as many people have said, you don't lose the skill of being an opening batsman or a test level batsman. You might lose a bit of confidence. You might lose that rhythm as Joe clearly did, but that skill is always there and it just takes something to unlock. And let's hear a little bit more about what Burns had to say in his press conference today. Yeah, it's funny how um, in this game, it's often one shot that can, can just give you um, everything you've been searching for as a batter. It's probably the first pull shot I'd hit off um, match Yadav. Um, I think I was on four. Um, I just felt out of the middle of the bat and it felt amazing. So, look, I, I think all summer I've been really confident. I've been um, batting well, um, just without rhythm. Um, as I said before, to, to find some rhythm in the middle, um, often it can be one shot away. Um, but look, I, I just kept working hard. I've been in this situation many times before and you, you know how quickly it can turn. But at the same time, you you know, you go into next game and you have to start again. Um, there's another job to, to do, but yeah, probably that shot in particular felt really nice. So Nick, listening to that, listening to Joe talk about how he reckons he has his rhythm back now, does that excite you a little bit that we could have a bit more of an established pair at the top of the order, especially when Warner's back going into some big series, obviously Test Championship next year, Ashes 2021? Yeah, I think ideally selectors would love to see Warner and Burns as the partnership opening the order for the next three or four years. Like that's ideally what we'll be having in the test side. And uh, there's a lot to like about that pair. You've got the, you know, both of them are quite aggressive um, early on in their innings, which is um, sort of reminiscent in some regards of Langer and Hayden. And at the same time, we've got the left-right-hand combination, which is always ideal for an opening partnership. So yeah, if, if Burns can rediscover that mojo, as he said, then... Hopefully these two will be leading the charge for the next three or four years. And then the likes of Pekofsky and Harris will be waiting in the wings. It's certainly an exciting time. And hopefully Joe Burns can continue that resurgence that we saw in the fourth innings in Adelaide. I guess the last thing that we have to touch on from this match is where do India go from here, Nick? Because they're not getting stronger. They're certainly getting weaker over the next three matches now with Virat Kohli heading home. No more Muhammad Shami. How do they stop this from becoming a 4-0 embarrassment, I guess? Oh, well, frankly, I, I can't see them coming back, honestly. I, I really can't. I mean, simply because a, a team relies on stability so much more than we realise in Test cricket. And now we have a side where not only have they lost their strike spinner in Jadeja, not only have they lost two of their strike pace bowlers in Muhammad Shami and Ishant Sharma, not only have they lost an opening batsman in Rohit Sharma, and now they've lost their captain and best batter in Virat Kohli. Like, they've lost half their side. They're essentially playing with a second 11. And now there's talks, if, if it hasn't already been confirmed, they're swapping out their wicketkeeper and bringing in a different wicketkeeper. Literally every position in this side, no one knows that they're going to play in the next 11. No one knows if they're even worthy of playing test cricket at the moment. So... 
there's a lot of uncertainty in this side. Um, winning away from home just in general is so difficult in test cricket. And when you get bowled out for 36, your confidence is shot. Like right down to village cricket. If you get bowled out for 36 at any level, and in under 10s, if you get bowled out for 36, it's pretty dire and a lot of players are going to lose some confidence. I think looking at that Indian side from Adelaide, I'd say there's, I'd say there's only a handful that you can go, yep, you will definitely be there come Boxing Day. I think Agrawal obviously will definitely be there. Pujara and Rahane, they will definitely be there. So I think we're yet to see whether maybe Rahane might move up to four. He's kind of been hesitant about that in the past. So it could be about putting in Shubman Gill there. So, But that then means leaving pretty sure at the top of the lineup. And he's been so inconsistent that can you afford to leave him at the top there? I guess the other option is obviously KL Rahul can come in or you bring in Saha and Pant and have one of those wicket keepers as a specialist batsman. There's so many questions there because... Vahari's place definitely isn't locked in. He didn't do anything to go, all right, we have to pick you again. I think the bowling lineup, obviously, besides no Muhammad Shami, I thought Ashwin was fantastic in that first innings. He bowled really well. Obviously, that massive wicket of Steve Smith, but just landed the ball beautifully. Boomer and Yadav were okay, but they definitely can be better and there's more to come from them. So I think there's no concern picking them for Boxing Day. I guess it's about which third paceman will go with them, whether it will be Siraj or Saini. I think they might lean to Siraj just because of his performances in the Australia A games, but it really is a toss-up between either one of them. But plenty of questions for that Indian lineup ahead of Boxing Day. It kind of reminds me of the Australian test side after the greats, Langer, Warren, McGrath, Hayden, Ponting, Gilchrist, after that era of greats left Mm. and we couldn't quite find in the Australian test side who was going to replace them. We spent five, six years looking for the the best number three. We're still looking for the best number six. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was a bit all over the place and it it kind of reminds me of this Indian side at the moment. I mean, if you take away Kohli and Pajara, that batting lineup is extremely vulnerable. Did some research today. Would you like me to hit you with some stats about why India can and win, why India can't win about with Virat Kohli? Well, I, I can have a guess at which list will be longer, but hit me up. Which one would you like first? Would you like the can win without? Or yeah, you know, hit, yeah. Tell me why they can win because I, I'd be curious to know how they can win this. India have won their last four matches without Kohli on the bounce. So the last four matches they have played in Test cricket without Virat Kohli, they have won. How uh, Quick question, since Coley's debut, how many games has he missed? He's only missed eight since June 2011. That's really interesting. Okay, good to know, good to know. Mm-hmm. And then going beyond that, in terms of who scored their runs since 2018, let's go back to the start of that last time they were out here in Australia. So looking at about November, December 2018, Virat Kohli isn't actually their highest run scorer in terms of tests. Can you guess who it is? Is it Agarwal? Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. Brought up the 1,000 runs for India. Kohli is second on 987, but then you've also got Pajara and Rahane who are in the 970s. So you've got, you've got three guys there who have also made a lot of runs in the last two years. So when you look back at the stats to when Kohli debuted, Overall, he has been far and away the leading run scorer. But in the last two years, you've had the three guys sort of close that gap a bit. So I think not all hope is lost there. And then throw one more stat in there for you. When Rohit Sharma does hopefully come back for these last two tests of the series, over the last two years, he has the highest average of the Indian team with 73.55 in test cricket. I mean, fair enough. Fair enough that um, Rohit Sharma will just be coming back from injury. Um, and I, it's hard to see him dominating the series after just returning from injury. I feel like they're kind of rushing it in some regards. But uh, hopefully he can, can come back and turn this around because they're desperate for an opening batsman. They really are desperate for someone of a slightly stronger calibre to pair with Agarwal. All right, let me hit you with the stats about why India cannot win without Virat yeah. Kohli. <laughs> Firstly, those four wins on the bounce that they have won without Kohli, they were all in India all in home conditions, including one against Australia and Dharmasala in 2017. And I think the other two games, one was against Bangladesh and two were against the West Indies. So it is something that you can look at and go, maybe that record isn't as good. The four away test matches they have played without Coley, they were all in 2011. They were all in England and they lost all four. 
Mm. I wouldn't read too much into that one because obviously Coley was very new to the team. That was his debut year, but it still goes to show that they don't have a record, good record away without Coley. Now I did some real, a deep dive of how many runs Coley has scored as a percentage of India's total runs. Since Coley debuted, he has scored 14.5% of India's total test runs. So you're looking at that and that's going pretty much somewhere between one-fifth and one-sixth of India's total test runs have come from one player, which is quite incredible. That moves up to 18% when Kohli was captain. So in matches that Kohli has been captain, he has scored the best part of one-fifth of all of India's runs. That's a massive chunk to remove, and I just don't think that no matter who they've got on the side, they're going to be able to replace that. Well, we saw the impact on Australia when he took away Smith and Warner. That was, you know, dire. And, uh, yeah, they really struggled without those two. And Australia, bluntly, would have lost the Ashes quite comfortably without Steve Smith as well. So it's, you know, it is a team of 11 players, but when you take away the strongest player, it does feel very different. Um, So in the press, obviously, the Indian players aren't going to say that they're going to be you know, you know, overly affected by Coley's absence, but deep down they are. They do know that um, it's going to be a lot tougher. All right, before we finish up with this dissection of the first test, let's have a listen to see what Virat Kohli had to say in his final press conference of his tour. It's a strange one, to be honest, because as I mentioned in the post-match, the ball didn't do much. I think we didn't have enough intent uh, to go out there with the plan of taking the game forward and... Um, yeah, everything hit the edge. Everything um, just happened so quickly that no one could make any sense of it. And um, yeah, it was it was quite disappointing because the position we were in from there to um, have uh, an hour and a half like that was was very very uh, surprising and, and um, disappointing for everyone. Okay, Nick, a couple of bits of news that we have to look at after this match. The ICC test rankings, there's been a bit of movement in terms of the individual placings. Smith, still number one in batting, but Virat Kohli has closed the gap and Manus is still number four. But in the bowling is where the big movement has happened. Josh Hazelwood has snuck back into the top five. He is now the fifth best test bowler in the world. Paddy Cummins remains strong at number one, while Mitch Stark is at number seven. What do you make of that? And is it pretty clear that Australia have the best bowling lineup in the world? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I mean, we're at a point now where it's undisputed that Australia have the best bowling attack in the world. Now we're starting to think about where does this bowling attack rank in Australia's all-time bowling attacks? Like, obviously, in my mind, the best is McGrath, Lee, Warren, Gillespie. That, that for me, is number one. And then you go back, potentially, Lily Thompson, the 70s year is also very strong. And then um, the um, Invincibles back in the 1930s, also strong. But where is this side in a few years? Where are we going to perceive this bowling attack compared to the rest of them? Mm. I think recency bias will definitely skew the debate for now. But even looking back in 20 years' time, we'll look back at this era and go, this was an incredible fast bowling trio who just took so many wickets at such a good strike rate and we're blessed I guess to see them live because it is fantastic to see them all in full flight and look I just hope we get to see more examples of this because they're all really in their prime so they're all around that 27 to 30 31 mark where they can bowl together for three four years now and it makes you feel sorry for guys like Michael Neasel guys like James Pattinson because they're not going to get in this team when this trio are bowling like this. Yeah, spot on. We saw in the Ashes that the selectors did trial rotating the bowlers, which uh, worked to an extent. It, it sort of, I don't know, it, it, it worked at times. But at, in home conditions, these are the four bowlers you're going to pick every time. And yeah, sorry to Pattinson and Nisa. There's no de- denying their talent, but they're, they're the best bowling quartet in Australian conditions at the moment. Okay, Nick, we're Sydney Siders. We've been talking nonstop throughout this podcast, throughout the history of this podcast, about how great it's been to have so much cricket in Sydney. It's coming back to bite us as we approach the New Year's test. It's looking increasingly unlikely that we're going to be seeing the New Year's test in Sydney. Cricket Australia aren't making a call on it. They're hopeful that the COVID numbers in the Northern Beaches outbreak and the cluster over there will start to subside. But from all the talk, it's looking like that they're going to have to move this test, Nick. I mean, what's your opinion on it? And if they do have to move it, what do you think they should do? Well, I think the next 72 hours is critical. 
Um, if the situation does continue to worsen, uh, then they will be forced to make a move. And I think the best option is to double up at the MCG and have back-to-back test matches there. Um, the other options are that they go to Monica Oval and Canberra, that they switch the Gabba and Sydney test matches, which have problems in itself. But if in the next 72 hours we do see a decline in the number of new cases, like we did actually see today on, on Monday as we're recording this, um, if there is a decline, then there is still a chance it could be at Sydney. Maybe not with the full capacity that Cricket Australia had hoped. Maybe we go back to that sort of half capacity from a few weeks ago. But regardless, I still think there there is a chance that it could still be in Sydney. But it does depend on the next 72 hours. I think Cricket Australia will make a call based on the next two or three days. I do like the idea of maybe switching the GABA and the SAG test just for this year. Obviously, the New Year's test will always be a Sydney test. But if we can switch the GABA test to the New Year's test on January 7, because then that means that there's no issue about quarantine. Because the Queensland border is still open to Victoria, if players go straight from there to Brisbane, they won't have to do the 14-day quarantine. Whereas if they come from Sydney, they would do. And not only the players and You've got to think of the staff, the broadcasters, all the behind the scenes that have to go on to get a test match up and running. There's just too much logistically that has to be done for a 14-day quarantine to be thrown in there as well. So I think if I was picking right now, I would switch them just to give yourself a bit more time and then you can maybe do a second test at the Gabba as well. That is also an option. So look, I would be giving Sydney as much time as possible because it does appear the numbers are coming down but you've also got to start just – you've got to have backup plans in place now because it could get out of control quite quickly. Would it be cheaper for Cricket Australia if they couldn't do Sydney? Would it be cheaper just to do back-to-back in the MCG so you don't have to move all the facilities and staff and then go to Brisbane for the fourth test? Yeah, I guess so. I guess that definitely would be cheaper. Um I think obviously the concern is that they want to give Sydney as much time as possible, but if they are making this call, say – Boxing Day or even before the Boxing Day test, that gives you the best part of a fortnight, I guess, to sort of prepare for that second test. So, yes, I would argue that it would be the financially or the fiscally responsible thing for Cricket Australia to do. So, I just don't know. It's it's such an up-in-the-air situation that changes so quickly day by day that Cricket Australia could announce one thing on Wednesday and it'll be different by Thursday. But... I think the two options that are looking most likely at the moment are no SCG test, have a second one in Melbourne, or switch the SCG test with the Gabba and give Sydney a little bit more time. But I tend to agree with you that the second test, having the third test in Melbourne will be what they're leading for because of the financial reasons. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. That's the beauty of life in COVID. There's so much uncertainty around everything, not just cricket, even though cricket is everything. <laughs> The one piece of cricket we can look forward to with some sense of certainty is the one-off test match between Australia and Afghanistan to play, take place in November 2021. I don't think it's been confirmed where the test match would take place. They've only just reached the agreement that it will definitely happen next year, but more than likely it will be Perth, considering that's where this year's one was meant to be. But it's quite exciting, I think, Nick, that we're going to be playing Afghanistan in a test match who knows what the result will be, but it'll certainly be exciting to watch. I think this is going to be really exciting for two reasons. A, obviously the historical element, you know, a lot of uh, new faces in test cricket, uh, Rashid Khan, you know, ripping some leg spin on, on the test arena, uh, which will be fantastic to see. But the second reason is it'll be a fantastic audition for a lot of Australian players leading into the Ashes. It'll be hopefully taking place just in the weeks leading into the first Ashes Test match. And um, so often we base selection on Sheffield Shield, but um, this is obviously a great opportunity for Cricket Australia to settle on a starting eleven with um, a Test match against Afghanistan, which you you would assume will be a comfortable Australian victory. But um, yeah, considering they lost to Bangladesh a couple of years ago, anything's possible. I absolutely love the photo that the Afghanistan and cricket board have used of Tim Payne too. Oh. They've taken one straight out of his test debut. Blonde tips are still there. Uh, may as well just champed him at the same time. Oh, he was baby-faced Tim Payne. I mean, he has a baby face as it is now, but 10 years ago, he looked like he was 15. It was hilarious. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a quick break after all that talk about test cricket and look forward to the big bash. 
Well, Nick, we've only had two more games of the Big Bash League since we last caught up, but we've seen some pretty interesting performance in both of them. Uh, what's caught your eye in particular? Oh, it's got to be said Dan Christian has been the star oh, of the weekend, yes. for sure. I mean, obviously he scored the second fastest Big Bash 50 in history, um, just coming second to Chris Gale's 50, which I've got a gut feeling will never be broken. But this, the way he batted was was quite phenomenal. He, he does something now in the T20 game in the dying overs with his grip. I don't know exactly what it is technically, but he seems to open the face out towards point a little bit more. So when he comes through with that almost baseball swing, it always seems to slap the middle of the bat. I'm not sure exactly what he does, but it's um, have a look next time he's batting in the dying overs of a T20. And he opens the grip a bit and, and changes it slightly. It's, it's pretty fascinating to see. And obviously works wonders for him. And I also love how revolutionary he's been in terms of his bowling as well, because he's just come on as an amazing death bowler, coming around the wicket, bowling slower balls at the legs that players just can't seem to get away, that the strikers batsman just knew that the ball was going to be going there and couldn't do anything about it each time. So it's fantastic to see how he's taken the game to a new level and used some of his experience and now as being someone who's been in cricket so long and really put it to good use in the T20 format. It does remind me of when I played backyard cricket oh. with my brother and I'd come super wide uh, around the wicket and just bowl at his toes. It was almost impossible to get away. And uh, yeah, Dan Christian seems to be stealing my idea, trying the same thing in the in the professional format. <laughs> like all good cricket things have to relate it back to our own performances. I, I really enjoy that from you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the next thing I want to look at is poor Briggsy. Poor mm. Dan Briggs from the Adelaide Strikers. He's been subbed out of a game twice through the X Factor rule now. However, he will he will be quite um, happy about the fact that both times he was subbed out, the player who came in did not perform well on both occasions. Well, it's quite incredible that he's obviously a, someone they consider a bowler, not a great batter, but he put in a really good batting innings earlier this tournament with Dan Morrill, that incredible 10th wicket partnership. So... It's not like he's a slouch with the bat, so it's kind of confusing why the strikers have opted to take him out of the lineup. And and gosh, Liam Scott got carted around by Dan Christian, so it certainly would be one X factor decision the strikers would be hoping they could take back. And Alan Briggs as well, he does have first class centuries. He did, as you said, um, score the highest ever BBL score from number eleven batsman ever. So exactly as you said, it is a bit bizarre that they are swapping him out. And I'm yet to see a beneficial use of the X Factor yet. I mean, we're almost a quarter of the way through the tournament and I'm still yet to be convinced that it was a worthwhile innovation. Just bin it off now. We don't need it. That's it. Done. <clears throat> I'm putting swap, a line through it straight away. Swap it out for DRS. <laughs> oh, yes, please. It is so desperately needed. One thing that we have not lacked in the Big Bash is fantastic line and length bowling. And that was showcased by Dan Worrell in Bell Reeve the other night. That was a fantastic spell of outswing bowling, just trying to get the edge of Josh Phillippe and James Vinson. He just looked like um, completely unplayable. It reminded me, funnily enough, of... Um, Cummins and Hazelwood in Adelaide and that they kept putting on a line in length it kept going past the outside edge and unlike the Indian batsman it missed the outside edge on most occasions and if you saw the pitch map that they put up on the Channel 7 coverage it really was in like a Glenn McGrath cluster on a line in length and in my mind it was the best BBL bowling performance I've seen from a pace bowler since Mitchell Johnson in that semi-final in 2017. And it's great to see bowlers having luck and producing such quality on these wickets and not being carted around for 10 and over like we normally see a lot of the time, especially from someone like Dan Worrell, who has never reached the heights of Australian cricket, but has been a consistent domestic cricketer. So it's great to see him get some recognition lately. I just want to put it out there, Nick, that my prediction was the Hobart Hurricanes to win the, the tournament. And I am sitting very pretty at about the quarter mark of the BBL because they are on top. They have Colin Ingram as the leading run scorer. They have Jimmy Faulkner as the leading wickets taker. I am looking very good here. Well, can I also point out that they had played four games before most teams had played three. So there's, there's obviously they're going to be that. higher up the None order. None of that. <laughs> um, but yes, they have been great. Um, obviously, Ben McDermott has been leading the way with the bat. He's looked superb since he came back from that, from that Australia A game. 
and a, a blast from the past. James Faulkner has been fantastic with the ball as well. So, yeah, they look like a very solid squad. And imagine bringing back in Matthew Wade. That would uh, really solidify that top order. So definitely finals contenders, uh, championship contenders. And, yeah, your prediction is looking pretty good, but my Sydney Sixers are not looking terrible either. There's one name you've left out of that Hobart Hurricanes lineup as well, who's set to join up with them too. The number one ranked T20 batsman in the world, Dawid Milan. So they are only going to get stronger. So it's fantastic that they've had that start. Obviously, they've all been home matches essentially for them. They've flown up to Queensland now. So hopefully they can continue that form and my prediction will be proved right because they have looked the goods. They've got a very well-balanced lineup, but we've just got to wait and see whether they can continue. One more thing I want to bring to you is late last week, I got on a press conference with Jason Holder. There are only a couple of us, couple of us on there. And it was really interesting hearing from the West Indies captain about his perception of the Big Bash coming in as an international signing. He's only here for three matches with the Sydney Sixers, but we saw already he had an impact down in Hobart, hitting his first bully face for six. But he spoke about two things in particular that I want to play for the podcast and one of those is about the Black Lives Matter movement and how eventually he would like to see cricket and get to a stage where we don't have to take a knee because these social issues are thought of so frequently that it's something about everyday life it's not something that has to that awareness has to be brought to which I thought was a really interesting point and something that he's spoken about and been at the front of the conversation for previously. And I guess the second thing was chatting about where the Big Bash stands in terms of international competitions worldwide. I think it's pretty clear that the IPL is the best domestic T20 tournament in the world just because of the amount of money they have there. But there's so many other ones popping up around the world that you can be forgiven for thinking maybe the BBL has dropped down the pecking order a little bit. But Holder confirmed that as West Indies captain, he talks to a lot of not only his own teammates, but opposing players as well. And the Big Bash still has its place as the second best T20 domestic competition in the world. Here's what he had to say. Welcome to the Sixers. I guess, first off, um, what was the decision behind joining the Sixers? And are you looking forward to your time here? Yeah. Um, yeah, Big Bash cricket is something I always wanted to play. Um, I had the opportunity, obviously, being in New Zealand a short while ago, uh, and the Big Bash being relatively close. So, um, a couple of days before our next tour, so I, you know, I said, "Why not? You know, just come over and see if you can get stuck into it and enjoy it." Um, but yeah, really happy to be here finally. Um, it's been a long time coming, in, in my opinion. So yeah, looking forward to the next couple of months with the Sixers. How have the last sort of few months been for you? Obviously, you've been in New Zealand, as you said, in the bubble environment there. Was there any temptation just to go straight home or were you really looking forward to playing a little bit more cricket over here? Yeah, I try my best to keep home off my mind, you know, as as I'm trying to keep my head down and focus on what I need to do. But yeah, home is definitely an option. Um, I've been on the road now for the last six, six months or so now and yeah, it's been a difficult time, especially with the bubbles and, you know, everybody's different government regulations and protocols. So, yeah, definitely home was, was, on, was on in mind a bit. But, you know, I felt it necessary to come over here um, to just get get this experience, you know, the way to take this box. And, you know, Sixers were willing to have me for the couple of games. And, yeah, that was just the, the storyline behind me coming over here to play. We've seen a few more sort of West Indies players in this year's tournament than we have in previous years. Obviously, you've got Carlos at the Sixers with you, but we've got Nicholas Puran and Andre Fletcher at the Stars and a few others in other places. Is there anything in particular that we've seen or a reason why we've seen more West Indies players come over this year, do you think? Well, I just think it's the opportunity. Um, Normally, we would have cricket around this time in, in in our calendar. And, you know, the opportunity did present itself for a few more guys to be available. Um, you know, a lot, a, a lot had to do with us being in New Zealand as well and, and not having to, to go through the, the, the massive 14-day quarantine here as well too. So I guess that made it a little easier for, for players coming from New Zealand. Um, obviously, a few, few more Kiwi players wouldn't have been able to come because of their cricket summer going on at present. But yeah, for us, we've had you know a couple. We've got a couple of weeks now before our next tour schedule, uh, early Jan into about to Bangladesh. So it was just really the opportunity, really presenting itself for a few more players to be available. And you said you've got that one more tour to Bangladesh. 
do you know when you guys will be able to sort of, I guess, go home and have a, a bit of a break? Do you know when that will be yet? I think it's a, it's a personal personal thing. Um, guys who definitely wouldn't cross formats would have a little bit more time to, to have off. Um, I guess the difficulty will come with someone like myself who, you know, cross formats, plays both white ball cricket and red ball cricket for West Indies. Um, yeah. I really, I really don't know how, how, how to, to, to answer that question right now. Um, I guess we're just going to take it as it comes, you know, probably have a couple of days before this, well, between this and, and Bangladesh. And yeah, just try to make use of it. But I guess the, the hard thing is not being able to have families, you know, travel with you to some of these places, um, you know, particularly with a few borders being closed. Uh, it's been difficult for government to, to allow, you know, partners and family members to, to travel. So. Yeah, that presents another challenge, but, you know, just trying to get along. Uh, some of the guys also have been um, pretty strong with their Black Lives Matter protests before games. Um, Carlos and obviously Andre as well, taking a knee. Um, have you been impressed with the way that's been taken up in the BBL by everyone? Well, yeah, I mean, just coming over, just trying to get a general sense of how it's been taken, you know, um, the different perspectives from people and, and they're just their, their opinions on it, you know, there have been a few questions answered, um, you know, and this is just Carlos filling me in on a few things that have happened. You know, I spoke to Fletch as well yesterday and they're just filling me in as to some of the questions they've been asked and, you know, just how it's been handled or, or perceived from most people here in, in Australia. But I think the, the heartwarming thing for me is just people are just really eager and keen to find out what, what was the history of it, you know, the, the, the meaning of it. You know, and, and just just trying just try to educate themselves on it and you know as i've said time and time again for me it's, it's just a great awareness or it should be a great awareness around racism in general uh, and just the origin of more thing of most things but I, I think once we get more education going around it and people could then form a, a true honest opinion you know and, and and maybe better in a position to stand up or, or support um racism in general We've had a lot of talk leading into this year's competition about sort of the calibre of international players and that we need more international players coming to the Big Bash to take the competition to the next level. How do you think the Big Bash is viewed by international players? Obviously, we've got the IPL, the Caribbean Premier League. Where do you think the Big Bash sits internationally? I think it's right up there with one of the with one of the best T20 comps in the world. Um, you know, I think after IPL, it's probably rated as the second best. Um, yeah, but I guess for, for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's a difficult time of the year as well, too. Um, being around Christmas time, you know, into the new year as well. You know, lots of people have their summers um, around this time as well, too. So it's been difficult for a few international players to commit. And it's just whether or not you can get the time, the time to come over and play. But I know a lot of players relish the opportunity to come over here and play because it's a, it's a well or highly spoken competition. And, you know, it's always been, been Marked as, as you know, one of the best T20 comps around the world. So, yeah, I think it is a lot of respect and uh, there's a lot going on, going on um, behind the, the push of Big Bash cricket. And I, I have no doubt that I'll continue that way. So, Nick, what do you think? Do you think the BBL needs more international signings? Do you think we just need to build up what we've got at the moment? Are there any big changes that we sort of need to continue this growth and I guess one day, hopefully, challenge the IPL for that mantle of the number one T Twenty tournament in the world. I don't think they have to do anything drastic. Um, I, I've been pretty open about what I think the BBL needs to do, um, and it just needs to be shortened slightly. What I'd love to see is for the competition to start the, on the day five night of the Test match before Boxing Day. So, for example, this year it would start on well, I, I suppose tonight, uh, just before Christmas. Um, so obviously everyone's finishing up work. We can watch a bit of T20 cricket leading into the Christmas break. And then obviously that will continue through to Boxing Day and New Year's and early January when everyone's still hopefully on holiday. And then it'll wrap up with the final on the final weekend before school holidays in late January. I think that's what I'd like to see. If, if that means shortening the game uh, down to 10 group stage matches per side, I think that'd be fantastic. And in doing so as well, then a lot more international players would be willing to sign on. We wouldn't see international players joining, you know, for the last couple of weeks of the tournament. We wouldn't see international players leaving after three or four weeks. I think a lot more players were willing to join for the whole thing. 
one thing Holder raised was that the timing of the tournament is a bit hard for international players, that it is summer in a lot of places, that it's the Christmas and holidays period that they want to be spending with their families. Do you think, I'm just spitballing off the top of my head here, that if we moved the tournament to, say, obviously around the IPL so it's done at the same time, but say a March to May or something like that after the international summer is sort of done after we play that sort of secondary test series in February and March and we go mid-March to mid-May or something. Do you think that could be a possibility or do you think we just have to go, okay, December, January is when the BBL would work best for Australia. So we have to do it then. I think, frankly, that's, that would be a terrible idea. I think honestly, um, the reason being, um, the BBL has been so successful in the summer it's because they don't have any real competition in terms of yep. like television. They have the A-League, which is um, not necessarily very popular. The NBL, which again, isn't the most popular competition. If you move it to March versus, March to May, then you're up against the opening few rounds of the AFL and the NRL. And I think we all know what's going to win out there. Uh, it seems pretty clear to me. By that stage, everyone's done with cricket. It's cricket's thing of the past. It's footy season when it gets to March. So, no, I think Christmas time is BBL time. Everyone now psychologically associates Christmas, at least in my mind, with the BBL. Well, that is where the BBL sits, sort of after the first four rounds, I guess you could call it. And it'll be really interesting to see how the rest of this tournament goes, how the viewing numbers goes, how the crowd numbers go, and I guess who wins this tournament because, but despite it sort of being so disrupted by COVID-19, it could be one of the best tournaments yet. So I'm sure we will take a lot out of this year. We're going to take another quick break before we come back with Nick's Savage Seed. Nick, let's wrap this podcast up. What have you got for me? Savage Seed, let's go. I still haven't written a jingle. That'll come one day. Maybe when we do it next season, I'll have a jingle ready. Um, okay, my, my Savage Seed for this week. I've been inspired over the weekend. And we are now, what are we, 10 months away, hopefully from the T20 World Cup in Australia. And in that Australian squad, there should be Dan Christian. Oh, Okay. Okay, I can see that. Do you think his role, though, is something we've got enough of already? We've got someone like a Marcus Stoinis who is an all-rounder. We've got someone who is a Mitch Marsh who kind of plays the same role. Is there a place for a third sort of pace bowling all-rounder? Here's the problem with the Australian T20 side. I've written an article about this before, actually. Australia has a lot of amazing opening options. Matthew Wade, Marcus Stoyness, David Warner, Aaron Finch. But what we've seen is obviously the selectors go for Finch and Warner. And then the likes of Wade, Stoyness, even Darcy Short coming in at five, six and seven. Now that's not where they play in the Big Bash. They've had their success in the Big Bash Mm. opening the batting. What the Australian selectors need to do is actually pick a specialist number six to go to six, not another opener who's done quite well opening, slotting in at five and six. That's just, they never seem to do well there. Darcy Short has never done well at six. Even Stoinis has never done well at number six for Australia, except for one game in New Zealand three years ago. So why don't selectors actually pick a specialist number six? And I think the best in Australia right now is Dan Christian. Look, I can't debate you in terms of Christian's form line because he certainly could be in recognition, but I just think that there's too many other options for him to be getting picked in that side. I just, yeah, as much as I would love to see him, I think he's one of the greats of Australian cricket at the moment and he's absolutely a fantastic personality. I just don't see it happening. All right. It'll cost us the World Cup, but all right. Cost us the World Cup, please. Australia's never going to win a T20 World Cup in our <laughs> lifetime. It doesn't feel like it anyway. They don't deserve to win one, that's for sure. Yeah. All right, would you like my Savage Seed? Yes, hit me up. Hit me up with the the, the Savage McCurdy Seed. (laughs) So next year we also have the ICC World Test Championship final. Mm -hmm. Correct? Yes. That final will be played between Australia and New Zealand. 
Well, it's shaping up that way, isn't it? I mean, if you have a look at um, the letter at the moment and how India are going in this test series, it seems very, very likely. Um, yeah, I think and also it's it, it has to be said, Australia and New Zealand are quite lucky that because of the COVID situation, a lot of their away series have been cancelled and they've got to play a lot more test cricket at home, which as a result means more victories and higher up the ladder. And yes, but I think you might be right there. It's certainly looking that way. Because I think people sort of go, okay, obviously Kiwis, they're great at home. But when you look at their record, they've had some bowlers and batsmen who have obviously done fantastic things. We all know about Kane Williamson and his record. But you've got Neil Wagner and Tim Southey, both in the top five test bowlers in the world right now, which I think is pretty incredible, really. But when you look at the batting as well, they've got some other names in and around that sort of top 10, 15 players in the world. Tom Latham has crept into the to 10th place after his sort of impressive performance against the West Indies. So is Henry Nichols. He is in 12th. And then Ross Taylor, he continues to be one of the best batsmen sort of in that 4-5 position around the world. So I certainly think they would have what it takes. And an Australian-New Zealand Test Series at Lords, I think that would be a fantastic way to finish off the inaugural ICC Test Championship. Oh, I agree. I absolutely agree. I think they are, you know, the two strongest sides, um, the possible exception of India at the moment. Um, I think India have just been a little bit below their best the past um, 12 months or so. But yeah, with New Zealand, I just want to see them perform a little bit better away from home. When they toured Australia, well, 12 months ago, they, they really were abysmal. They didn't put up a fight at all. They were they were very, very poor. So if, if we can see the Kiwis and the Black Caps hopefully um, replicate that form in some tours away from home, then... Uh, that'd be fantastic. But for now, they do seem to be uh, home track bullies at this stage, like Australia are. Maybe they could convince Ben Stokes to come and play for his homeland again. That'd be interesting hearing <laughs> at Lords. Oh, dear. Ben Stokes, what a talent he is. Uh, hope, I hope he's doing okay with his um, his father recently passed away. So I hope he's doing okay. And, and uh, best wishes to him and his family. Of course, we can't wait to see him back out on the cricket field. All right, Nick, we're leading into the holiday period. This is probably going to be our last podcast before Christmas, before Boxing Day. So what what have you got planned for this big festive season? Well, on my uh, Boxing Day Eve, I'll be with the family. I'll be um, giving away a few alcohol-related presents and a couple of non-alcohol-related presents as well. And uh, I will certainly eat too much, drink too much, and just mentally prepare for day one of the MCG test. How about yourself? Well, I want to ask, have you asked Santa for any new cricket gear this this summer? I do need a new kit. I need No, my stick's fine. My stick's great. I need a new kit. My current kit is terrible because most kits in the world, you can open it from the top. It zips around. But mine's got a terrible design where there's one small zip from the side, like the toe end of the kit. So you have to reach in with your arm and see if you can find your goal. It's horrific. It's a terrible kit and it's starting to rip. I need need a new kit. Apart from that, I'm I'm set for the cricket season. How about about yourself, mate? How's how's your bat feeling? How's your kit going? Well, I definitely don't get to use my bat as much as I would like. So it is in very good nick. Uh, (laughs) It is very fresh. Uh, But yeah, no, kit's all right. I'm like you. I could do with a new bag. So maybe I'll put a, a last minute letter into Santa for one of those. Well, there is so much cricket going to be happening over the next week. Obviously, the Boxing Day test, but plenty of big bash as well. You can stay up to date on it. I'll be covering it for Sporting News. Nick, you'll be doing it for the NCA Newswire and news.com.au, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, spot on, spot on. Uh, Although, NCA Newswire, I'm wrapping up with them pretty soon because as of January 4th, I will be full-time with news.com.au, which is exciting. Very exciting news, and you'll be able to catch plenty of cricket content from Nick over there on news.com.au from 2021. Remember, Boundary Rider, we are on all the social channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and you can also email us at boundaryriderpod at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and a rating as well. It really is much appreciated, and it helps us get us out to a new audience. Nick, Merry Christmas, Merry Holiday Season, and I'm looking forward to recapping the Boxing Day Test with you in a week's time. Merry Christmas to you as well, mate. Have a have a great holiday. But before we wrap up, don't don't you have Ooh. a uh, don't you have a TikTok to plug as well? Look, I, I found the cricket TikTok niche. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, the algorithm clearly works well because people are enjoying my content. No, I uh, put a little video up of Virat Kohli's run out in 
the first test in Adelaide when Rahane skewered him up the other end. And look, let's just say it's gone semi-viral. And if you want to check that out, head over to my handle is elmacurdy 7 on TikTok. Might be using that uh, familiar sound. If you if you know TikTok of, oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, obviously sung a lot better than that. So, yeah, definitely give that a check out while you're looking around the social channels. Maybe we'll have to start a Boundary Rider TikTok account, Nick. I think we'll leave the TikTok to you, mate. I've never used it. I've never downloaded it. So you, you can take over the, the, the TikTok social media. <laughs> That's what they all say, Nick. And then, then you get hooked. Oh, I haven't downloaded it yet. Who knows? By the time we do the next pod, I might be addicted. Who knows? If you haven't done it in a pandemic year, I think you've stayed pretty strong. <laughs> that is where we'll leave it for this week. Happy holidays to everyone at home, and we'll catch you after the Boxing Day test.